Would you pray with me before we start? God, I thank you for each man in this room. Most that I've seen just be faithful throughout this entire series, uh, coming to hear from your word. And I thank you that they've come to hear your word again this morning. They haven't come to hear from me, but they've come to hear from you. And so God, I just ask that you would speak to each man individually, powerfully. Speak to them individually. Speak to them right where they are this morning. I thank you that your word is powerful and true. Apply it to our lives today and let it change us and transform us so that we may know you and make you known. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer changed my life. I'm convinced that had it not been for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I wouldn't be here today. It was one of those nights at seminary. I was about halfway through my seminary career. And it was just one of those nights where I was like, what in the world am I doing here? I have no clue. And I wandered into the library and I picked up a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I read his philosophy on discipleship. And I thought, man, that is what I want to do. And I went the very next day and I changed my degree. And I'm convinced that had I not changed my degree two years into my seminary career, that I literally would not be standing here uh, today at Christ Chapel. So I owe a lot to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I began to uh, not just look at his view of discipleship, but I began to look at his life a little bit more. And some of you might not know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a professor and a theologian, uh, actually German, back in the 1930s and 40s. And what I love about Dietrich Bonhoeffer was he was a man who knew no fear. There was no giant too big for him that he wouldn't take on. His dad was a psychiatrist, and, he, and Dietrich was really smart. And most people thought that, they, that he would follow his father into psychiatry. But at the age of 14, he started reading theology. And he wanted to be a pastor at the age of 14. And his brother said this to him. He said, why in the world would you want to be a part of the poor, feeble, boring, petty, bourgeois institutions such as the church? At 14, he, t he tells his, his brother this. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. If what you say is true, then I will reform it. At the age of 14. If what you say is true, then I'll reform it. He knew, he knew no bounds. Back in, obviously, the 30s, when Nazi Germany began to, to rise and the socialist movement there began to get on the move, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a lot of different pastors were pushed out of Germany. 
And many of them stayed in London and even in the United States. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer came back to Germany because he said, this is where God has called me to be. And I don't want to come back here afterwards to rebuild the church if I wasn't here when it was destroyed. He was a man who did not have any fear to the point where he even joined a group who was planning to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And whenever this group was was going down the road, they had many attempts and they failed and they failed and they had one coming up and it looked like the plans weren't going to go through. And they said, maybe we should just postpone these plans. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, and I love this quote. He says, if we claim to be Christians, there is no time for expediency. If we claim to be Christians, there's no time for expediency. Man, what a, he was a man of passion. If we are Christians, if this is what we claim to be, then we have to act. We have to move. And I could think no more of the story of David and Goliath. Because I think David had an attitude much like Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he said, man, if we are God's people, then we have to do something. David was a man of passion. And it makes me say, what is our passion today? Where is that passion? Because I believe that we all have it. I believe that we all have the passion inside of, inside of us. It's just, what does our passion push us to? What does our passion move us to? Does it move us to action? Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, we're gonna move because this is who we are. Or do we move towards safety? Do we move, do we move back? Do we move out of the country? Do we play it safe? Do we look out for ourselves? What does our passion lead us to? To action or to safety? David was a man of passion and it moved him to action. And that's what I want to talk about today. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at David and his passion and then his different byproducts from his passion. But today we're going to look specifically at the story of David and Goliath. And I know it might be familiar to some of you, but I hope and pray that God shows this to you in a different light. The first thing we need to notice is that Challenging circumstances call out our passion. Challenging circumstances call out our passion. Just as with Bonhoeffer and and the rise of Nazi Germany and Hitler, that was a challenging circumstance that called out his passion. There was a tipping point there where he was either going to go forward or he was going to sit back. And we have the same thing here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Read with me in verses 1 through 3. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Demim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. I was blessed to be able to go to Israel, uh, gosh, it was a year ago in June, so it's coming up just on a year ago, and we went to the Valley of Elah, 
and it was so cool. I mean, this, the, the description here of, of the battlefield literally is stadium seating. I mean, it, it is just like any stadium you would go to today. You've literally got two hills that look down, and you've got the valley right there. And you've got the Philistines on one and the Israelites on the other. Everybody could see what was going on on the battlefield. There, was, there wasn't a bad seat in this stadium. And then we were introduced to Goliath in verse 4. Verse 4, Goliath the champion. Read with me. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds of armor. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath was a champion. Now to be a champion back in those days, you might as well put undefeated because the mode, as you know, probably some of you, as the story goes, Goliath calls out for one person. He says, you're best guy against me. Okay, And Saul even says later on that this guy has been a fighting man since he was a boy. Okay, Champion means undefeated. This guy has never been defeated. Because had he been defeated, he'd be dead. So he is a champion. Goliath is a champion. But why is Goliath here? Why is Goliath here? Goliath had been allowed to stay in the land. Goliath had been allowed to stay in the land. It says that Goliath was, was from Gath. Now, Gath was just about seven miles west of Bethlehem. This was Israelite territory. And when you look back at the conquest, whenever uh, uh, Joshua was coming in to conquer the land, he conquers the land and he, you know, they, they start destroying everybody in their path but it says that he left some survivors in Gath Joshua left some survivors in Gath and when he leaves a survivor in Gath it grows up to be a Goliath how often does that happen in our own lives when we're supposed to clean stuff up in our lives we're supposed to take care of things and we leave a little remnant we leave just, just a little bit. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not that big of a deal. And it ends up growing to be a huge deal, a giant in our life that we end up having to take care of. Goliath had been allowed to stay in the land, and we don't need to allow things to linger in our lives as well. Goliath also called out to be dealt with constantly. Goliath called out to be dealt with constantly. Verse 8, read with me. It says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Goliath called out daily. And we find out later in verse 16 that he actually called out for 40 days, morning and evening. He would go out 
and he would say, hey, here I am. He called out constantly to be dealt with. And the Israelites didn't deal with it. You know, I used to, I'm, I'm relatively young, I used to live in apartments a lot. And uh, now, my wife and I, we live in a house. And to be honest with you, I really hate it sometimes. Uh, because when I lived in an apartment, they had a thing called an apartment manager who you could call when anything broke, you know? The, the toilet's broken and you just call the apartment manager and you go to work or go to school or whatever and you come back and your toilet's fixed. Jennifer doesn't do that. <laughs> and I'm finding many things in our house that call out constantly to me <laughs> for me to deal with. It, it's a full-time job. But those things constantly call out to me and they nag me until, not Jennifer, the things, nag me until I take care of them. We have this place on our ceiling and every time it rains, it drips right there. Drives me nuts. But it calls out for me to fix it. It calls out constantly for me to fix it. And it reminds me of things in my life that call out constantly that God is saying, hey, Cody, I want to take care of that. I want you to step up. You and I need to take care of that. We need to deal with that. We need to get that done. And I say, oh, it's just a drip, you know. It's just a drip. It's not coming any further. It's not dripping on our bed or, or on, it's not ruining anything. It's okay, you know. Goliath is just coming so far. They're not coming any further. They, draw, they drew their battle lines. I can listen to that drip. I'm okay with that. But God wants us to deal with those things. They call out constantly. God wants us to put them to an end. Goliath's presence was insulting to God as well. In verse 10, then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Remember, he knew who Israel was. Goliath knew that God had opened up the promised land for Israel to possess. He killed off a lot, uh, Joshua killed out a lot of his relatives. He knew exactly who he was. But today he says, I defy the ranks of Israel. I'm defying your God. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Are you going to just sit there? Goliath was a giant. But Goliath is a giant. He would have been a giant compared to any of us. But giants are giants compared to everybody else, right? We know a giant is a giant because we compare him to a normal-sized person, right? So who's the normal-sized person that he's compared to here? David. Let's look at the description of David. David, the boy. David was a boy. He was probably around the age of 17 at the time. David was the youngest in his family, Now, David, in verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephraimite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second, Abendab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. 
David was the youngest in his family, and he wasn't even considered a fighter. He wasn't even considered a fighter. David was a shepherd, if you keep going. But David, uh, in verse 15, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David was a shepherd. He wasn't considered a fighter. He was the young boy. He was the baby of the family who was just meant to tend some sheep. That's all he was meant to do. He wasn't equipped. He wasn't anything like that. He was the youngest. He wasn't considered a fighter. And in fact, he was a harp player. When you look back at chapter 16, when Samuel anoints David, he goes to Jesse and he says, let me see your sons. And so Jesse brings out all seven sons. And Samuel says, no, not him. No, not him. No, not him. And then finally he says, you know, where's your youngest? Oh, well, he's out in the field. I mean, why in the world would you want the youngest? Why would you want him? So he goes and gets David and Samuel says, this is the one that God has chosen. David, the youngest. And David's like, okay, I was tending sheep. Now I'm God's anointed. Cool. I like this. You know, I got something on my brothers now. You know, he's, he, that's, that's where he is then. But then... Right after he's anointed, you see that David is brought into the palace of Saul to play a harp. Okay? So let's just think about this real fast. You've got Goliath, who is nine foot nine, and I tried to make something that was nine feet tall. This is getting up close to eight. Okay, I was trying to get something close to ten. So Goliath is almost ten feet tall, okay? He's got 120 pounds of armor. He's got an armor bearer who goes out with him to help him carry his stuff. And then you have David, the shepherd harp player. Harp player. I mean, this is shaping up to be Andre the Giant versus a young Elton John, okay? I mean, really, who is your money going to be on? A harp player. I would never choose a harp player to go out there and do that. But you know, that's how we often feel in our own lives. Giants come in a variety of forms. It can be an illness. It can be financial problems. It can be sin, whatever. It can be daunting. And it can be calling out to you constantly to be dealt with. And you might feel unequipped and inadequate to deal with it. You might feel like a harp player. Like there's no way that you can take that on. But God wants you to trust in him. I want you to take some time right now at your tables. I want you to look back at, at the description of Goliath in 17, 1 through 11. And I want you to talk about around your tables, are there any Goliaths in your life that seem huge and daunting? Could it be a sin or a past failure that continues to call out to you and defy your God? Do you feel ill-equipped or not up to the task like there is no way that you can take it on? And I'll start. My giant, I, I'm a perfectionist. I, I'm a firstborn. 
Um, it's just my brother and I, but still firstborn perfectionistic tendencies. Um, I, I was always usually fairly relatively uh, good at doing what I was told because, man, I wanted that approval. I wanted that approval. So I wanted my parents to say, yeah, you did a good job because my little brother, I mean, he just looks cute. I mean, he gets everything. He's the baby, <laughs> like David. Anyway, but he gets everything. And, and my deal was, man, I just want to do everything right. And so that's become a, that's become a real problem between God and I um, because it's hard for me to accept grace. It really is. I'll just be honest with you. And my giant is my own sin, my own failure. Every day, every day, my, I, my sin calls out to me. It says, you did this wrong. You're such, you're such a bad person. You, know, you're, you are a sinner. You, you messed up. You made God angry. And I just let it call out to me and I go, you're right. You know what Satan means? Do you know what Satan means? Accuser. Accuser. And so I just have that accusation continue to call out to me instead of saying, you know what? I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven by Christ alone. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And just refute it. Just fight it with scripture back and forth. But that's my giant. That's what I face every day. That's what calls out to me constantly. And only by trusting in the Lord will that giant fall. What are the giants in your life? You got about 10 minutes. We've got about uh, another 25 verses to get through. <laughs> to finish up the story. Uh, my, my wife, Jennifer, and I, we just celebrated our first year of marriage back in March. First year. Um, thank you. Thank you. Leading into what I'm about to say, it, it truly is. Thank you for the applause. Um, the first year was probably like anybody's first year. They, they always say it's hard, which I always thought that, you know, they always say your first year is hard. So I literally thought, maybe it's just my more literal personality, that there was going to be a switch that went off, you know, after the first year and everything was just magically better. Um, <laughs> We still uh, have some of the same communication problems that we always have. But I've learned a lot about myself. And to be honest with you, I've really surprised myself a lot <laughs> at how I'll act sometimes um, toward, towards my wife. There will be times where we will get into different discussions and we'll begin to talk. And uh, I really just don't want to deal with it. And so I will literally, this surprises me, but I will literally just walk in the, in the living room and just turn on the TV and just start watching TV. It surprises me, and which only obviously enrages her and, and makes her more angry. But I just really don't want to deal with it at that time. Anyway, at that time, my passion for myself is leading me to passivity with my wife. And there's times uh, here, and I want to I look at the difference between the passion for self and the passion for God. And we're going to start out with the passion for self. Because see, what I should do with my wife, I should have such a passion for my wife, that, uh, and not for myself, 
that I should go and pursue her. And I should say, we, you know, and lead in that and say, we're going to figure this out. We are going to settle this. You know, we're going to, we're going to work through it. No matter how many hours we've already been working through it, we're going to hammer it out till it's done. But what I, sometimes I just hit the wall and I'm like, forget it. I just want to watch TV. Turn on the basketball game. My passion for self leads to passivity, and it's the same thing that happened here with the Israelites. As Goliath, this, this circumstance arises, this challenging circumstance, and the Israelites and Saul end up having a passion for themselves, and it leads to passivity. Uh, look at verses 24 through 28. We're going to look at Israel first. I'll start in verse 23 because David goes through the ranks and he begins talking to these people and he's like, David goes out there, his dad tells him to take food to his brother so David goes to the front lines and he starts asking people, hey, what's going on here? And they hear about Goliath as he was talking with them, verse 23, Goliath the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out of his lines and shouted his usual defiance, usual defiance, I love that, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter in marriage and he will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. And David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him again what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. They repeated to him. They knew exactly what was on the line. But their passion for themselves looked for safety. Their passion for themselves looked for safety. They knew exactly what was on the line and they weighed the risks. They said, okay, he would give great wealth, he would exempt my family from taxes, and I would get his wife, or his daughter. His daughter must not have been very pretty, or something, because nobody's going out there, all right? They must have looked like him. But nobody goes out for this. They weighed the risk, and they had such a passion for themselves that they played it safe. And I think oftentimes we do that too. Sometimes, for instance, with with my wife, whenever I go watch TV, I weigh the risks. And I say, you know what? It's not really worth getting into anymore, I think. I'll just go watch TV. We can deal with this tomorrow. I weigh the risk and I say, eh, what I want to do is just play it safe right now. I think we oftentimes do that in our lives as well. Passion for self ignores the obvious. It ignores the obvious kind of goes with that saying ignorance is bliss you know David asked them hey tell me again what will be done and then he says in verse 26 who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God do you guys not see what's going on here David comes with a fresh pair of eyes who is this guy There's no way he should be coming out 40 days and 40 nights saying the things that he does going against the living God. He's not just defying us. He's defying our God. 
But sometimes our passion for self ignores the obvious. Ignorance is bliss. Just don't tell me what's going on. If I don't know about it, then I don't have to deal with it. I'm just going to ignore the obvious. I don't think that's going on. I haven't heard that specifically, so I'm just not going to deal with it. Passion for self also places our ego up front. In verse 28, David's older brother, Iliad, heard him speaking with the men. And he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? How demeaning. Who did you leave those few sheep? That's all you're responsible for, just a few sheep. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Oh, David, you're so selfish. You only had a few sheep. You don't have any responsibilities. And you just come here to just do whatever you want. But I think Eliab was actually hurt. I think his ego was up front. Because I think David asking these questions pointed out to his older brother that he was thinking about going after him. He was thinking about going after Goliath. And his older brother's ego was hurt because that's what he should have been doing for the past 40 days. He should have been going after him. And his ego was hurt, so all he does is gets back and attacks David. Oh, so you're thinking about that? Well, you can't do it. You're only uh, about a few sheep. You only have a few sheep. And you're conceited. You just want to watch. And he he begins to attack his brother with the same rage that he should have been using to attack Goliath. Because his ego was hurt because he had a passion for self. But Saul also had a passion for self. Saul also had a passion for self. And his passion for self led to insecurity. Let's read verses 33 through 37. Saul, David comes to Saul and he says, hey, I love what David says in verse 32. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Your harp player. Because remember, that's what he came in as, as a servant to Saul in chapter 16, is a harp player. So your harp player will take care of this dude. I love it. Verse 33, Saul replied, you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned to me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Different kind of harp player. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Saul had a passion for self and it led to his insecurity. Just some quick background on Saul. Um, In chapter 10, 1 Samuel chapter 10, Israel wants a king. And so Samuel the prophet goes to anoint a king and he's going to anoint Saul. And he brings out all the tribes of Israel. And he says, okay, guys, it's just like like we had all you here. And he says, it's not this table. It's not this tribe. It's not this tribe. It's not this tribe. And he gets it down to the one tribe. And he says, okay, it's not your clan. It's not your clan. And he narrows it down to the clan. And then he says, it's going to be Saul. And where is Saul? 
He's not there. He's not standing there. And and they say, the people actually there say, where is he? Is he not here? And God says, oh, he's here, but he's hiding in the baggage. He was hiding. It was time for Saul to step up and be anointed as king of Israel, but he was hiding in the baggage back in chapter 10. So Israel should have seen this coming, that when a challenge came, the way that Saul arose to it the first time was by hiding in the baggage. And do you know why Saul was chosen the first time? Because he was the tallest man in Israel. Who is Goliath? The 10 foot tall giant. And Saul is the tallest man in Israel and he's the king. But he was insecure in himself and what God had called him to do. Saul is the logical choice. He's the king and he's the tallest man out there. I mean, who's gonna go fight the giant? But Saul doesn't. He had a passion for himself and he was insecure. His passion for himself lacked trust in God. When he tells, when he tells David, you can't go against it. You're only a boy. You're only a boy. But do you notice that David always says, he's defying the living God. The living God. God is living and active. That's who's going to fight. And David even says that uh, in verse 47, he said, it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord's. But Saul had no trust in the Lord. He was only looking in the flesh and he didn't even have enough confidence in himself in the flesh, being the tallest man and king. He was insecure and he lacked trust in God. And his passion for himself threw others under the bus. (laughs) Saul said, to say, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. You want to go after him? Go for it. I'll let you. You know, you would think that the king seeing a 17-year-old boy say, I'll go after him, would say, oh no, oh boy, you're just a boy. Look, you're right. Somebody should go out there. I'll go. I'll do it. And Saul goes, pats him on the back, boy. good luck. Go get him. Which leads me to ask the question, who's fighting your battles? Who's fighting your battles? Are you stepping up to the plate and fighting the battles that God's called you to fight? You are the mighty men of the church, right? Are you stepping up and fighting the battles in your home? and in our church and in our city that God is calling you to fight are you letting others get thrown under the bus and saying good luck go for it because you have a passion for self that will sit back and just be passive David had a passion for God that led to protective action David had a passion for God that led to protective action David's passion for God trusted God. Verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on on his sword over the tunic and tried to walk around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off 
Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. David had a passion for God that trusted that God had equipped him already with what he had. He had given him the life experience. He had given him whatever he needed. He was a shepherd. He had fought a bear. He had fought a lion. He trusted God, though. Yeah, this was different than anything he had ever faced before, but he trusted that God was with him. He was the living God. Do you trust that God has equipped you and that he's the living God? He will be there with you no matter what you face, no matter what you take on, no matter what is in front of you. Do you trust God? Because this is the Lord's battle. Remember, he had defied the Lord. This is the Lord's battle. So if it's the Lord's battle... It's up to the Lord to win it. We're just the crackpot. That's all I am. I'm just the crackpot. But God wants to use that. But it's his battle. It's his battle. He's the living God. He's the one being defied. He's the one who will get the glory in your marriage, in your family, in the church, in the city. It's him. He will get the glory. It's his battle. He wants to use you. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? David had a passion for God that didn't fear confrontation because it's going to take confrontation if we fight the Lord's battles. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. God, what a man. Today I'll give you the carcasses, uh, man, just to say that, just with such gusto, today I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or by the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He wasn't afraid to confront And sometimes I'm afraid that we are afraid to confront. There's going to be confrontation. If we're fighting the Lord's battles, there's going to be confrontation. And there's going to be times, and there probably are times in each of our lives right now, I can think in my own, where I need to step up and I need to confront in the Lord's strength, in the Lord's power to fight the Lord's battles. But do I trust the Lord enough to step up and confront those who need to be confronted? confront those situations that need to be confronted. If I had a passion for God, I wouldn't fear confrontation. But when I have a passion for myself, I shrink back to passivity. I become passive. I weigh the risks and I say, "Uh, it's not really hurting me too much right now. David had a passion for God and he fights for God's reputation. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to the attack, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with his sword. Man, 
when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and they ran. David had a passion for God, so he fought for God's reputation. Today they will know that there is a God in Israel. Oh, how I wish, and I know that Ken and Ben and anybody else involved in the planning of this ministry wishes that that same thing would be true and that same thing would be said in your families, in your marriages, in our church, that we would confront for the sake of God so that people would say, today, man, I know that there is a God in your family. Today, I know that there is a living God in in your marriage, in this church. Today, I know. I want you to finish with a table discussion, and I want you to, uh, you've got about five minutes. Discuss what is your passion leading you to? Is it leading you to passivity or protective action of God's flock and his glory? What are some areas where God's asking you to trust him, step up, and fight his battles? And then if you would, just pray about that. Pray that God gives you the courage, gives you the strength. Pray for one another around your tables, and you'll be dismissed. Thank you very much.